Wheel Life, Legal Reflections on Vulnerable Road Users, an introduction. This is Wheel Life, Legal Reflections on Vulnerable Road Users, the podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello, I'm Emily Formby. I'm Caroline Hall. We are both keen cyclists. I'm a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers and work in the legal field of personal injury. Um, Basically, cycling has been my main form of transport for many, many years since student days. Uh, I tend to be a bit of a uh, uh, commuter cyclist, um, so I can cycle Uh, to the park and have a walk rather than uh, driving to the park and unloading my fancy bike. Uh, But I spend all my time travelling to and fro on bikes uh, wherever we may be. My son's been on a bike all his life, started off in a backpack, progressed to a a small bike and now we tend to go on a tandem. Uh, I uh, have uh, in our family of three, we have about 10 bikes in regular use between us. I like it nice and flat being a Londoner. Uh, cycling on a mountain bike has been known to make me weep with fear but since I bought an electric bike the Alps have been a whole lot of a easier um, progression. In terms of work I've worked in cycling related fields for many many years uh, working for claimants uh, through the British Cycling or the CLT membership organisations also a lot for insurers uh, and working on behalf of those that have had collisions with bikes uh, and the the range of claims are really everything from injury claims sadly some of which have become inquests uh, lots of highway claims accidents product liability the full range if there's a bike I've been there um, and I'm fully aware of how poor the line of sight for lorry drivers can be and how wide their turning circle needs to be uh, but uh, that's a little bit a bit about me and now over to Caroline. Hi, I'm Caroline Hall and I'm a solicitor at DAC Beechcrofts. Um, I've been dealing with um, defendant claims for insurers for 20 years now. I had my 20th anniversary last week. Um, And during that time, I've dealt with quite a few cyclist claims. My personal background in terms of cycling is I started to approach my 40th birthday and decided I needed to do something. And that something was a charity bike ride to Paris. So along with 25 colleagues, I trained to cycle from Bristol to Paris over four days and I haven't got off my bike since really. Um, I kept going, I cycle with friends, I've done sportives all over the country, Um, my favourite being around Loch Ness. Before lockdown, I used to also commute to and from work. And unlike Emily, um, I have hills in Bristol. So um, I have, I have to, uh, I've had to learn how to uh, climb hills. It's taken a while and I'm very, very slow, but um, I do do persevere um also i must admit cycling has helped me massively during lockdown i live on my own out out in the countryside and some days were very very long so i used to go out on the bike every single day to keep me going Um, in terms of my career um dealing with cycle claims as emily pointed out and i i alluded to at the beginning i am a defendant solicitor so unfortunately it's very much dealing with people who have knocked people off their bikes um, and where they've suffered injuries so that's a bit about the both of us we got together um over the summer and started talking about 
cycle claims and how this year has seen an absolute fantastic rise in cycling, which I think both Emily and I are very happy to see. Absolutely. I think it's um, been really astounding, actually. I mean, obviously, living and working in London when we still used to go to work, uh, it was, it's been apparent to me for a number of years that cycling has been becoming more and more uh, popular. And um, there's been something, an exponential rise, something like 50% increase in cyclists since the cycle lanes of TFL started to arise. But what's been really noticeable this year is the prominence that it's been having uh, really in the media and in the sort of public consciousness, I mean, partly the actual government advice being to cycle to work if you can, uh, stay away from public transport. And obviously in London, that's uh, massively staying off the tube. Um, uh, but there's just been, all, all over the place, I've seen people kind of getting their bikes out of sheds, dusting them down uh, and, and really having a go. Yeah, it's been an absolutely fantastic thing to see as a cyclist um, and feeling like I've been in the minority cycling around Bristol to actually there's cyclists everywhere. Um, in terms of figures, obviously, I think there was the bike sales increased by 63% uh, year on year between April and June of this year. And I know that by the end of the first lockdown, you couldn't get a bike anywhere for love and money. And people are still trying to get bikes um, that they ordered back at the start of the year. So it's, it's fantastic. Um, and obviously, the government launched the bike, um, fix your bike voucher scheme as well. So as you said, old bikes have been dusted off and put on the roads. Um, Obviously, as a result of this, our insurers have seen um, a bit of an increase in claims because what concern, what has concerned me has been these new cyclists all of a sudden being on the roads and um, not necessarily um, having the experience. But on the plus side, there's not been any cars, which has been great. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's also one of the things I find odd is how people immediately get into a silo. So let's face it, most people who are cycling now also have driven or do drive or are likely to drive in the future. And yet almost all conversations have cars in one camp and bikes in another. And there seems to be a total lack of understanding or empathy between the two. Uh, to my mind, cycling, particularly uh, when you're using it to get from A to B, which has very much been the government's sort of um, uh, push this year, rather than long distance leisure cycling of the kind that Caroline is um, adept at and I'm not. <laughs> but that kind of um, using your bike as a way of pub as your first form of transport, really most of the journeys are very, very short, uh, under a mile in terms of nipping to the shops or going to the library or going to school. And there, re there really ought not to be a significant confrontation between cars and bikes in an adverse way, because if there are cars undertaking those journeys at all, they will also tend to be local small journeys. So speed ought not to be a point of conflict. But there does seem to be um, a real silo of, of thinking between car users and bike users, although most people are both. Yeah, and I think that's been evidenced later in the year with these pop-up bike schemes that the government have obviously put in place across London and other cities. We've got um, uh, quite a few roads shut down in Bristol to turn them into bike paths. And um, the amount of publicity, more for the people who don't want the cycle paths than the people that do, but they they have been used. Great, The, the statistics for them being used um, 
have been fantastic. And as you pointed out yourself, the bike lanes in London, the last time I was in London before before the change, um, I couldn't believe the amount of cyclists using them on a daily basis. It was fantastic to see. Yeah, I think one of the problems has been you can't help feeling there's a slight sort of political move to have a go at road planning and name it as cycle friendly planning. So um, uh, um, certainly around I live um, uh, near the Chelsea embankment, there's been a huge um, proliferation of bollards and temporary road markings that in a quite unnecessary way for a cyclist point of view, have channeled drivers along certain roads. And I suspect that there's a wider plan to make make cars be restricted to certain roads because, as we know, the government's desperately trying to reduce car use, whether or not it is a concomitant rise of cycling, uh, making carbon neutral by 2050 or ending sale of petrol cars and reducing cars in cities all round to improve air quality. And I sometimes think that bikes are being used slightly in a political way to drive a non-car agenda. And of course, the two sit together, but they're not quite the same. And so stopping cars turning left over certain bridges or driving on certain roads or making the speed limit lower is often badged as being in to, for the benefit of cyclists when I'm not sure it is and I think that probably increases that sense of conflict between potential road users uh, I mean you know everyone says Amsterdam is the you know the great cycling city um, and actually it's it, I it always looks to me, I've never been there, but it always looks to me as if it's not that it's so much a great cycling city, which it obviously is, but it's just a non-car city. And that, that I think, is probably an issue that is going to become uh, graver and graver as um, the, the, the push to get cars off the road uh, gains political momentum. Yeah, I think the main thing that can't that really needs to be pushed, um, and you mentioned it a short while ago, is that I... I walk along the streets, I'm a pedestrian, I get on my bike, I'm a cyclist, and I get in my car and I'm a driver. Um, and I've each time, um, I've got different views about the other people on the road because, uh, because of the way I've been <laughs> conditioned kind of thing. But it's equally yeah. that, as I said, I've defended, um, I defend uh, drivers mainly. Um, but equally, we've had quite a few cases where cyclists have been to blame. Um, and it, it's, it's very much it's the road user, it's the person, it's them abiding by the highway code, it's them abiding by the law, whether or not they're a pedestrian, a cyclist or a driver. And it's trying to, as you said, stop it being used as a, a political view in terms of cyclists, but having it very much as we're neutral um, about who we we support um, as defendant insurers, whether or not it's a cyclist, a pedestrian or a driver. It pretty much is who is the road user at the time and how how did they contribute to this accident or how did they um, not contribute? How was it not their fault? And I very much am trying to, to condition myself. As I said, when I'm on the bike, I don't like drivers. And when I'm in the car, I don't like cyclists. And it's it's trying to get back to the fact that we're all on the road together and it's we need to safely get to the end of our journeys. Yeah, I mean, I wonder whether... Uh, a way forward is actually for us not all to be on the same on the same road together. I mean, actually, more segregation, uh, because certainly the the success of the cycle path has been allowing bikes to zip along without worrying too much about cars. But of course, in old cities, you've always got the points where everyone's turning left and right or comes together at junctions, 
Uh, but one thing that has also been a significant rise that we didn't have six, eight months ago has been, uh, has been e-scooters. Uh, and the scooter that seems to um, be the kind of the cowboy of the roads, as far as I can see. I mean, they, you know, I mean, on the one hand, they're not actually legally allowed to be anywhere, as far as I can see. Um, they're not allowed. They're not licensed to be on the road. They're not allowed to be on the pavements. That's unless they're the government schemes, that, which obviously we'll cover in the next podcast. Um, yeah. But they some. Uh, e-scooters are now legal on the roads, but the majority, the ones that you're talking about, remain legal on um, British roads. And but did you see what I did there? Give us a little tag for our future <laughs> podcast. But of course, it's only <laughs> it's only the very small the small number of licensed scooters, and most people have their own. Uh, but but I suppose what I was thinking was the image um, of the um, urban scooter. Uh, is generally somebody who's upright. So in your mind's eye, you see a pedestrian and then they crack on and come at you at a rate of knots, uh, generally dressed in black with their scooter in black. They're not into the high-vis lycra of the cyclist, so they're almost impossible to see. And they jump off the pavement and onto the road um, with alacrity. And I think that is obviously to all the e-scooter users that are deeply responsible, that's a disservice. But that image of the... um, um, the sort of the, the cowboy road user um, I think that's something that as we all move into different forms of transport we're going to have to be more collectively sympathetic toward each other which I think is what you were saying about uh, yeah, no, coming out of your headspace but I agree and I'll tell you one story from yesterday about an e-scooter um, I did go into the office yesterday and walked out with a colleague and we were um, walking along the it's a bike path slash pavement outside the office and a guy in an e-scooter was walking towards us uh, sorry was scooting towards us and this guy if he'd have been stood on the pavement must have been about six foot five six foot six and he was on a scoot e-scooter and it was the scariest thing i've seen coming towards me because it was he was he was huge on standing on the scooter he must have been about seven foot just under seven foot of, of all dressed in black coming towards us on the pavement and we kind of he wound his way around us we didn't necessarily have to move out of where we were he was he had his front light on he was dressed in black and then he had a reflective backpack on so actually he was pretty much almost there didn't have a helmet on but otherwise he was he you could you could see him or you couldn't miss him because he was so big (laughs) it was it was one of those things that was really quite scary um yeah it was such a big object coming towards us at speed on a pavement um and that was actually a bike path slash pavement it's one of these shared use everyone can walk around and scoot together um so that was really i think it's they're here to stay they will be here next next after the trials and we'll obviously talk about that in time but it it is a change and it's the change that we're all going to have to to deal with in terms of different travel because um with as you mentioned earlier carbon um the government's plan to try and be carbon neutral and stop selling petrol cars by 2030 um as a result we've got to look at alternatives and e-scooters are here they're around the world and they're not going anywhere and they are brilliant fun. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually tried one yet, but I, I do know I have to. Um, and I can see the pluses in them. I think it's just the fact that, um, and as you pointed out, it's putting them in another silo. So we've got the, the cowboy e-scooter riders next to the cyclists um, yeah. and car drivers. But where where do we think we're going to go with these podcasts in the next couple of weeks, Emily? What topics do we think we, we are going to cover off? 
I like to think we're going to cover them off. Uh, we'll have to see see where we go. But our aim, let's put our aim, our intention is, and we could definitely say yes to this first one. We're going to be talking about e-scooters and micromobility and sort of future transport. But uh, because you've probably heard our wittering on, we're actually going to get a bit of an expert in who's one of your colleagues. So maybe you should introduce Peter. Yeah, my colleague Peter Olshawn will be joining us on the next episode to deal with uh, futures transport. He um, deals with our Department of Transport consultation responses. We've just done with one with regard to highway code. He's also put one in with regard to ELKS, which is um, automated vehicles. So he's the person who knows what's coming um, and is definitely the person to talk to us about where the future of transport is likely to go in the next 5, 10, 20 years um, and also maybe give us an indication of where we see that impacting claims. So then we also thought we would talk about um, some of the kind of key legal issues that have arisen in the past about cyclists. An obvious start of a 10 is helmets. Are they good? Are they bad? Should you wear them? Shouldn't you? Uh, and if you do or don't, how will that impact on claims? So we thought we'd have a little look around that and around some of the new technology um, with uh, cycle helmets actually having some... Uh, proper design thought being given to them and what that might look like in the future. So is wearing a helmet going to become like the, the new seatbelt issue or is it going to remain something uh, rather more optional? And it will also not not just uh, deal with cyclists, it's going to obviously have an impact for e-scooter riders as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Another area is technology um, in terms of recording devices or uh, things like Garmin, Strava, all of that kind of um, jazz, but also um, cameras uploading for police to use for, for prosecutions. Yeah, dash cams and uh, uh, people recording themselves as they go along, uh, using their phones as well, all that kind of technology. And Strava's had a bumper year. They said they've had a massive increase of downloads and, and people recording where they are. So pretty much if uh, uh, you want to know where somebody is these days, you have a look at their Strava record and see where they've been. So we thought we'd have a look at the technology, use of it, good and bad. And then we thought we'd look at, um, not necessarily in this order, but another area we thought we'd look at is insurance. Uh, so, as I said earlier, um, we um, are involved often with accidents involving bikes, cars, lorries, not so often pedestrians, because, of course, insurance um, is a key area of uh, looking at liability, litigation and responsibility. So we thought we'd have a look at some of the developing areas around coverage um, and some of the new products that are coming on the market to deal with these new transport forms. That's in terms of uh, cyclists, e-scooters, uh, because one of the points that we'll cover in terms of e-scooters is under the government schemes, they have insurance in place. But if they aren't looked at as um, motor vehicles in the future, then compulsory insurance won't be, need to be in place. So will they be dealt with the similar way to cyclists? Because cyclist insurance is currently optional. So... Uh, for that podcast, we hope to have somebody in from the industry who will be able to um, add a bit more information about the changing way that insurance is applied to these uh, um, forms of transport, such as switch on, switch off insurance, or um, also insurance to cover if you've injured yourself um, and there's nobody else to blame, but it will help you with your rehab. And also, I think looking at um, increasing use of public um, transport, so, um, you know, bikes, cars, scooters that you pick up on the street, um, plug and go, and look at some of the issues around use of those. 
Yeah. Well, also, because we are um, a solicitor and a barrister, we will look at some case law um, just in terms of general updates um, for cyclists and other vulnerable road users. Obviously, everybody knows about the case from last year involving the cyclist and the yoga teacher. We'll have a look at that, but we'll also look at some others. And also have a think of some of the other issues like uh, uh, the infamous potholes, highway claims and the kind of areas where, uh, yeah, there's some case law to chat about. Um, but more interestingly, from highways in the depth of your pothole, we also thought we'd have a look at road layout and use of roads overall. Um, so I think there's some very interesting thinking um, from the uh, cycle friendly. Was it in Bristol? They did the cycle friendly roundabout that they had to shut before they opened it because it was an accident straight away. Um, but partly no. about... Where was it? Somewhere outside of Swindonish area, wasn't it? I, I'm not quite sure. But it wasn't. Anyway, it was a big roundabout, or Canterbury. Though. Anyway, um, a big roundabout that basically was designed to have uh, uh, bikes and cars in perfect harmony, and there was an accident before it had even opened. Um, but road design, road layout, um, a lot to be learned from the Europeans, um, and our ideas about uh, having too much road furniture, clutter, what you can see, what you can't see. Um, um, things like that and part of the sort of great TFL experiment as I call it of the way that London roads are being carved up um, to enable road differentiation and use so we thought we'd have a bit of a look at that um, this this was yours actually uh, do we need a bike at all um... <laughs> well I was just really interested and quite intrigued and it came from some of the statistics we had about um, you know Strava use and, and the, the way that people have been using bikes and exercising during lockdown but also actually the revolution of whether you need to go outside at all um, and bikes and static bikes um, and um, the peloton revolution uh, whether or not that's got any legal interest whatsoever um, but I thought that was quite interesting and uh, we might have a bit of a look at that. Well, I suppose you can uh, tie that into your other um, suggestion, which was cycling and mental health. In that, um, <laughs> yeah. People are cycling for health gains, but also mental health gains. As I said, it, it kept me going throughout lockdown. Um, but people exercising on static bikes in the home is the obviously another alternative there. Um, one of the other areas that um, we discussed looking at is criminal charges, um, alluding back earlier to the yoga teacher and the cyclist claim uh, accident from last year. There was also the previous incident involving the cyclist on the fixie bike in London who um, unfortunately killed a pedestrian. Um, since that time, um, members of parliament have been looking at whether or not there should be a change in the law um, in relation to dangerous, careless and inconsiderate cycling. And there's a member's bill that's already had its first reading. So taking a bit of a more detailed look at where there might be the expansion of um, the law surrounding cyclists um, and whether or not they will be prosecuted. Obviously, the incidences of cyclists um, injuring other people and or and or killing them um, are very, very rare. But obviously, there's enough there that, um, that it looks like there might be a change in the law. And I think that that feeds into the way that most of the litigation or the law has progressed has been in the civil arena because it's been to do with compensation and so recovering from the damages that have been inflicted to you or on you has obviously been of greater importance in a societal desire to punish or control what are 
have until now been a pretty small use of road users. So it'll be interesting to see uh, whether the criminal law moves to keep up with an increased use of cyclists or whether the push continues to come from an expansion of the civil law. I think the other area that we'll obviously cover won't just be cyclists, it will be e-scooter riders as well. Yeah, well, if we amber it out to uh, uh, all vulnerable road users, by the time we get there, we may even find there have been a few segue prosecutions. We'll have to see <laughs> how we go. Um, but moving on from that, as I said about the expansion of um, the, the civil claim, uh, an area that we are um, uh, involved in a lot and, and which both of us feel very passionate about is the use of the litigation process to actually assist with the best recovery that can be afforded to those that are injured. Uh, so rehabilitation and the management of injuries um, is something that we thought we'd talk about. And the way that whether you are a payer or a recipient, uh, rehabilitation can be a key component of uh, the litigation management and indeed the pre-litigation management. And I think that also feeds into what I was saying about mental health. Um, and, and we'll come on to it again, but one of the things that I've always been struck by is the psychological devastation that is disproportionately wrought on cyclists, serious cyclists who um, suffer harm, often um, have a far worse outcome than other uh, injured, injured claimants. Yeah, um, I've got a few examples of that in my case um, files at the moment with people who haven't recovered as they anticipated. They thought they'd be back on their bike very quickly and a year down the line they're not. And we're now starting to see the psychological impact of the accident, which for the first year was very enthusiastic with rehab and things take time. Um, so, no, I'm I'm quite looking forward to having that discussion. <laughs> Good. And then uh, we thought we'd slip in another guest or two. Uh, so Nick Brown, who both of us know from slightly different uh, <laughs> arenas, uh, but he's going to come and talk to us about property damage uh, and recoveries. And you were a trainee with him, weren't you, Caroline? I was a long, long time ago. Um, well, actually, sorry, I was a paralegal. He was a trainee at the time, so obviously he was slightly senior to me. But uh, he qualified and then gave it all up to uh, open his own bike business, um, which I must admit, when he first did it, God, 18 years ago now or 15 years ago, whenever it was, a lot of people were quite surprised. Um, whereas now he is the, the king of his domain in terms of looking after bikes in central London. Well, I met him as somebody who was prepared to come to work, pick up my bike, sort it out and have it back ready for me to cycle home again. So I fitted into his aspirational business model while you were all rolling your eyes in Bristol. I was thinking, <laughs> what a godsend this man is. <laughs> <laughs> and he's been fixing my bikes ever since. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think he's uh, quite looking forward to coming on and uh, talking everything bike and obviously anything law as well. Um, so he can remember his old uh, solicitor days. So to make that, that clear, he trained as a solicitor and then became Captain Bike Fix. So that's really where he comes and fits in. Yeah. Um, so those are just a few areas that we ha we hope to cover off in the in the coming weeks and probably months by the time we get to the topics. But uh, we're both enthusiastic. We both uh, hope uh, there'll be even more developments in the next twelve months relating to bikes and uh, e-scooters. And uh, yeah, hopefully you'll listen along with us. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barrister's Chambers, 39 Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeachcroft.com and 39essex.com.